0: All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, would you please open them to the book of galatians chapter five um, we 're going to be jumping around a lot this morning. Galatians chapter five is where we 're starting but if you could um, if you could take a few moments and go there, you can either start with me and stay there or you can jump around it doesn 't really matter i 'm going to do a lot of moving if you don 't have a bible you 're welcome to bring it uh, take one of the, the the Bibles out in front of you in the seat pockets down underneath the chair, and you can follow along or we also have the slides behind me as we go through this series so so we're week two in this series called Spirit Led. And, um, yeah, why are we doing this series? If you were with us last week, you heard me talk a lot about why we're doing this series on the Holy Spirit. Um, the basis of it really comes out of Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. And it simply says this, and I just want to read this to you. Paul says to the church in Galatia, the Christians, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the key to walking a life that honors God. Is not just knowing who the Holy Spirit is and how he works, but making yourself available to allow him to work in your life. Making him available to work in my life. And when we walk by the Spirit, the fight and the tension that we have in our lives, the tug of war that we have in our lives... Is less intense because the Spirit is the one that oversees and the Spirit is the one that conquers all things. The New Living Translation says it this way. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. There's one of two things that are going to guide my life either the Spirit of God's going to guide my life, guys, or I'm going to guide my life. And I've heard people say really bad things over the years, you know, in terms of bad counsel, you know, just follow your heart, follow your heart. Well, the Bible's pretty clear that, that our heart can be really deceitful. And there are things our heart wants to do that's not necessarily godly. Follow our heart is not always the right counsel. The most important counsel that we should ask is, what is God's heart in us and through us? And that's what we should be doing. And when our heart is aligned to God's, then we can move in those directions. But letting the Spirit guide us is the key to no longer pursuing the sinful ways of who we are. Because we're still sinful people. When the Spirit lives in the heart of every person who follows Christ, we still have an outward shell that is struggling in the sinful world, right? And we understand that. I understand that. I I struggle with that. On a weekly basis, at different times, I have to remind myself, like, hey, I'm an imperfect person that, that, that still lives in an imperfect world, and there's sin in this world, and it can affect my attitude, and it can affect my priorities. It can affect what I invest in and what I don't invest in. It can affect my heart to be generous or to be selfish. It can affect all those things in my life. But if I'm guided by the Spirit, He's the one that's doing the changing, I am guaranteed to walk closer to Jesus and not closer to myself. And that's really the paraphrase that I really have for why this is so important in this series. Because the definition of spirit-led may look different for everyone. Some of you here might hear the term spirit-led and it evokes all these understandings of what you've learned about the Holy Spirit, maybe in your life. Some of you, I had a conversation with someone last week and they, they knew almost nothing about the Holy Spirit. And that's okay too. You know, I don't want to assume that anybody knows anything about the Spirit, but what I do know is that the Word is what has to be the the, the foundation that actually helps us learn more about who the Holy Spirit is and not the world around us, not just the world around us. I kind of equate it to watching a movie versus reading a book. How many people have ever, and if you're one of these people, like, I still love you, but like, don't ruin it for me. You know, like you'll read the book and then you'll go to the movie and you'll be like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I read the book, and that's not it. Anybody in here like that? You know, raise your hand, a couple people like that. I love you, but don't do that to me. You know, I mean, this is what they said. And I know what's happening. And the author wrote it in the book. They had hundreds and hundreds of papers to, set, to, to put it together the way they wanted. And the director only had 90 minutes to figure out the best way to show it on the screen. So there are changes that they make, you know, and the changes aren't necessarily the changes in the book. Here's the parallel in that is Christianity and the understanding of the Holy Spirit can be like that. That we see the way the Holy Spirit works, and I use this cautiously when I say works, and we can base our theology or our pneumatology of the Holy Spirit based on what we see around us, how people respond, what people do, what they don't do. And there can be elements of truth to it, but do we know that it's definitely rooted in truth if we don't know what the Word says about who the Holy Spirit is? So that's what I want to do. I want to make sure we're staying rooted in what the Word says. So. Throughout this series, what I want you to do is is use these opportunities as a filtering process for those of you that have a good understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. but, But really take some of your understandings and shelve them just for a little while to say... Is everything that I believe actually in line with what we see in Scripture? Or am I basing some of my understanding on the Holy Spirit based on my experiences and my environments? Because they're not always the same, and we need to be careful about that. So Paul encourages us to be Spirit-led, and he says to do so, let the Spirit guide our lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. So what is a foundational definition of being Spirit-led? Well, I think it's this. When the Holy Spirit leads us, we will look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. Strip away all the manifestations, strip away all the gifts, strip away all the fruits. Just get down to the basic principle about what it means to be spirit-led. Those things come from this principle. But basically, if you and I are being spirit-led, we will continue to look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. That doesn't mean physically we begin looking like Jesus. It means the way that we live. The fruit of our lives will begin to look more like Jesus. Our relationships will look more like Jesus. Not the people we hang out with, but the way that we relate. Our marriages will be more godly. We'll understand what it means to really love your wife like Christ loves the church. Wives, to respect your husbands. It's easy to respect someone who loves them like Christ loved the church, by the way, just on the side. It'd be easier for a woman to respect her husband if her husband is loving her the way that Christ loved the church, who laid his life down for the church. You with me? We're good at talking about respect and honor and submit, but we're not always good about saying, guys, you need to die for your wife, okay? That's a hard thing for us to understand. But the more that we understand spirit-led, we look more like Jesus. The more that we understand our priorities, as we grow spirit-led, our priorities become more like Jesus. We go more from a heart that thinks about ourselves to a heart of generosity, where we begin loving others the way that Jesus wanted us to, to, to love him and love others, Forgiveness takes on a completely different definition when we begin to love more like Jesus and live more like Jesus. Our understanding of how we forgive. Our church looks different. The foundations of our church and our communities begin to look different. These are all directly affected by the way we are choosing to be led, either by the Spirit or by God, or by ourselves. So last week, we laid some basic foundations, and I just asked two questions. I said, who is the Holy Spirit, and what is his main role? And if you were here, you heard me say that the Holy Spirit, first, is the personal presence of God, okay? He is not an apparition, okay? He's not a ghost, you know? Some of you afterwards were talking to me about that. He's not a ghost. He doesn't float around and scare people. He's not scary. He is a person, in the Trinity, he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's not one God with three roles. There are one God in three persons. When we refer to God, we can refer to him as God the Father. He is the creator of all things. When we refer to God the Son as Jesus, he's the implementer, implementer of God's plan. God's plan of salvation comes through Jesus, who died on the cross. But the Holy Spirit is the administrator. He's the one that actually gives us the strength, the counsel, and the courage every day to walk in through our lives. Jesus isn't the one that does that, and the Father isn't the one that does that. It's the Spirit that he departs or imparts in us that actually gives us the strength to live the life that he's called us to live. You with me so far? Okay, I hope you're with me. If you don't understand the Trinity, I'm with you. It doesn't make sense to me. I go, I see it, I've read about it, I've heard all the analogies, my mind still goes, what? And I struggle with it, but that's what we see in Scripture, and I I keep going back to the place to go, if I can understand the triune God, then how big do I really feel like I am? I have to be actually really, really small because he's really big. That's why I don't fully understand it. But I do understand the different uh, persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's his primary role, Holy Spirit. He is a person. Okay, so much so this week I was going back and looking and it just blew my mind when I was like, yeah, I've never seen this before. In, in John chapter 20, verse 22, there's a, there's a verse where Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And and maybe some of you are familiar with that. And it's not actually an event that happens at that moment, but the tense of it actually is saying like, okay, it's foreshadowing. It's going to happen in the future. And it's a a simple event that's getting ready to happen. But what's really cool about it is that the original language on it doesn't say receive the Holy Spirit. The original Greek says, receive Holy Spirit. Meaning the article, the, is actually removed from that actual verse, John 20, 22. So he says, receive Holy Spirit. Okay? Which means... It's his name. It's a person. His name is Holy Spirit. Now, you can also go to John 14, 26 and see where the article is added. The Holy Spirit. My point in saying it is that if you want to call him the Holy Spirit, you're, you're okay. You're correct. If you want to call him Holy Spirit, you're correct as well. Why? Because he's a person. And that's the reason why we have different ways of, of, of uh, Defining who he is. Does that make sense? So cool to see that. I encourage you to go and take a look at that if you'd like to. Um, you just have to know Greek or at least know tools that have Greek that are involved in that. But it's so cool to see that because it's God's way of showing us he's a person. And the more intimate we are with people, the more closely related we are with people, and we see people as legitimate people, the more it transforms who we are. So he is a person. Last week, his main role was talked about, and I said he's our divine helper. He's not the kind of helper that just watches us do our work and then just chips in whenever we ask. He's not the kind of helper that always has a, walk, a wallet full of money and tools and resources that we just put our hand out and he just fills. He's the kind of helper that wraps his arm around us and walks us in the direction that he's called us to walk in. He knows the plans God has for us. He's made us with a purpose, and he's the one that will direct our steps. That's the kind of divine helper that he really is. We have to get out of the driver's seat to allow him to show us the way. But today we're not talking about those two specific things. We're actually looking specifically on how the Spirit helps us, not just who He is or that He's our divine helper, but how is the Holy Spirit our helper, and what does that look like? And I think the answer predominantly is in uh, Acts chapter one, verse eight. We can get a starting point for Acts one eight, which may be a familiar scripture for some of you, but for others it may be brand new. In Acts one eight, let me set this up before we get there. In Acts one eight, here's what happens. Jesus, at this time, he walked the earth, three years of ministry, was arrested, was crucified, died. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Scripture then says, over the course of 40 days, he appeared to over 500 people. And now he's getting ready to return to heaven. He's willing to ascend back to the Father. That's what's getting ready to, ha- to, to, to happen. And, and let me just say this as an aside. If this is the first time you've heard that, that sounds totally weird being honest. I've heard it for 46 years, and it still sounds weird to me. The reason why it's not weird in my heart anymore is because I know Christ, and I know the Spirit, and I know this is legitimate. So I want you to hear this. This is what's happening. Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to the Father, okay? Now, in the Gospels, he told them, he said, when I leave, I'm going to ask my Father, and he's going to send the counselor to you, who is the Holy Spirit, and he's going to fill you, and he's going to fill you with truth. He's going to be your counselor. He's going to live in you. That's what he says, okay? So he's getting ready to tell his disciples and all the people that are there and he tells them this which is super powerful before he leaves the earth. He says this in Acts 1:8. First he says, "Go into Jerusalem and wait for me, or wait for the promise." But then he says in Acts 1:8, "But you will receive power, okay, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses." Where? In Jerusalem, which is their hometown, in Judea, which is the region, the southern region of Israel, in Samaria, which includes all of Israel, half Jews and not Jews. And all of the earth means the entire world. So what he's telling them is, wait until you receive the Spirit of God. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power that's going to change your city. It's going to change the region that you live in. It's going to change the country of Israel. And it's going to change the entire world. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Especially since most of the people who he was talking to were uneducated nobodies that didn't have the background, the authority, or the ability in their own strength to do the things that Jesus was talking about. But he said, you are going to receive power. Now, I highlighted power in this because I want to talk about what he's talking about. We have different definitions of what power looks like, right? I mean, I would imagine. I mean, I didn't grow up in the era of Power Rangers, but do we have any Power Rangers fans in this place? Some of you were like, that's satanic. Whoa, right? You don't have to raise your hand if you want. I know people were like, you know, church people don't watch Power Rangers. I'm not going in there. I'm not going down that road. Maybe some of you did. And, and if you did, that's cool. Um, I don't have an opinion on Power Rangers. I think they look weird. Okay. But before that, I mean, I was into other kinds of cartoons before that. And, and But now, like, now Marvel movies are a big deal. Okay. Like, all these Marvel movies. Do we have any Marvel movie fans? I'll put my hand up for that. Any Marvel fans? Okay. More fans in the second service or you're just more honest. Because in the first service, there were like three people, and the rest of them were like, I would never watch that. I'm like, whatever. So I don't believe that. I love some of the Marvel movie fans, uh, Mar- Marvel movie uh, movies. I love some of them. They're awesome because, like, they, they help you get in touch with something that, like, our heart hungers for. What do I mean by that? Ordinary people have this experience that makes them extraordinary, right? Think about that. Captain America pre-serum, he was a scrawny little dude in that first movie. And then he gets the serum, and he's jacked. Like, he can, like, do anything. He can run. He can jump. He's, like, all this crazy stuff, right? Like, he's, like, the real deal. The Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk, like, he gets, you know, like, crazy scientist stuff, and then he turns into this big, crazy green man, and he, like, bust stuff up, and, you know, every little kid's dream to get those Hulk fists to just smash stuff, right? Every, especially every little boy. Anyway, you know, one of the kids in our small group a couple of years ago was into the Hulk, and I was like, what do you like about the Hulk? And he goes, Hulk smash. Like, and that's what he would do, and he would like to do that, and it'd just make me laugh. Spider-Man? I mean, you get bit by a radioactive spider, and then you can crawl up walls, and you can, like, sling stuff, and tie people up, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like... I was a kid. I remember dressing up for Halloween when I was a kid in a Spider-Man costume. I still remember being in our in our in our foyer trying before I went out for candy, trying to crawl up the wall because I had a Spider-Man costume on. Thank God I didn't climb up the roof, you know, but I was like, and I like it doesn't work, but my imagination ran in that right in that way, right? Because ordinary people have an experience that brings a supernatural experience after that. This is what Luke is talking about when he uses the word power the word power in here, the actual Greek word here that's being used is dunamis. And it looks like dynamis, but it's dunamis. And it's actually the word that we use to derive dynamite. And dynamite is pretty powerful stuff, right? I mean, you don't want to play with it, but it is fun to watch it blow things up. It's pretty powerful. When they destroy those buildings and they demolish those buildings, what are they using? Tons and tons of dynamite. Dunamis actually means this, in possession of controlling influence, okay, you have the ability to control influence, manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. So if I can say it in a different way, it means when Jesus said you're going to have power as the church, he's saying you will have the ability to influence your reality by supernatural means. Isn't that incredible? Like, think about it just for a moment. What he's saying, he goes, you are going to change the world, not by your gifts, not by your abilities, not by your education. None of those things are wrong. None of those things should, you know, not be pursued. The foundation that changes the world, the foundation, the supernatural foundation comes from the counselor, comes from the Holy Spirit. The church changes the world because the church is filled with the Spirit of God. You with me? Here we're going with this. That's the significance of this passage. That's why being Spirit-led is important. Why? Simply because this. Holy Spirit gives us the power to thrive. If we do not have Holy Spirit in us... We are not surrendered to Him, not walking with an attitude and availability. We will not experience the power of who He is, and we will not see change in our lives or in the community around us. We need to be led by the Spirit to experience true power. So, the question that I'm going to submit this morning, and we're going to talk about for the next few moments, is how does Holy Spirit empower us? That's just the question. How does He empower us? And the first thing I want to show briefly is this Number one, He lives in every believer, okay? He lives in every believer. How does the empowerment evidence in our lives? Number one, he lives in every believer. And this is really, really important because living in us means he is really close by right? I mean, the reality of it is he can't get any closer to me if he's actually indwelling me, if he's living in me. He's not just the personal presence of God. He's the promise of God as well. And you see this all through scripture, going back to the beginning in Genesis, when God and man were in unity with each other and sin enters the world and relationship is strained between us and God. All through the rest of this book, all through the rest of the Bible, you see the story of God pursuing us and building relationship and reconnecting. And every step of the way, he gets closer and closer and closer to mankind. In the Old Testament, the way that he inhabited the world and the way he built relationship with people was through the tabernacle and the temple. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that when Israel wandered in the the wilderness for 40 years after leaving Egypt, God had them build a tabernacle with the outer court and the inner court and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where the presence of God would reside. And he would live around the people. The people couldn't enter into that presence. The people couldn't enter into the presence of God and the Holy of Holies. They knew he was there. They saw an evidence that he was there. But they watched from afar as they knew that God was around them, but wasn't close by in the way that he will be in the future they remember when they look at the, the mountain in Sinai and they would hear the voice of God, as the scriptures say, as, as God was giving the instructions in the Ten Commandments to Moses. And they saw manifestations of different things, but he inhabited a place that wasn't their heart. So he lived around them, but he didn't live too close by. All through the Old Testament, though, you see a promise that this isn't going to be the end. There's more. It's kind of like the infomercials, you know, if you think this is good, but wait, There's more. And you kind of move in that direction. So it's like, if you could take this and you look in the Old Testament and the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then you go like, this is how God worked. But then the prophets are like, but wait, there's more. It's going to get better. And if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, you can see that God gives a promise through Ezekiel. And here's what he says. I will give you, speaking to Israel, speaking to followers of God, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In twenty seven, he says, and I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a promise that God speaks to the nation of Israel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happens. And what is he saying? You're used to the tabernacle, Israel. You're used to, when they built the temple that Solomon built, the outer courts, the inner courts, the Holy of Holies, you're used to this relationship where I live around you, but there's going to come a time where my presence isn't going to be in your neighborhood. My presence is going to be in your heart. And this is what you're going to see happen. So knowing that the Holy Spirit lives in us was still a promise that you see there. Fast forward to the New Testament in the Gospels, and Jesus comes onto the scene. And when the promise is made, listen, its so cool. When the promise is made through the angel to Mary, what does he say? You're going to be pregnant with a child. And his name is going to be what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So what is happening in this story? God used to live and his presence used to live in the Holy of Holies. And you'd see him from a distance in your neighborhood. But now he's gonna walk with you. Now he's going to talk with you. Now he's going to physically take his hands and lay hands on you. He's going to hold you. He's going to weep with you. He's going to touch your eyes and you're going to see. He's going to speak truth and people will be able to speak and their ears will be open, and they'll be raised to life. And he's going to walk with you for three years as he shows you what the kingdom of God looks like by being next to you in the flesh, where God was around you before and now God is with you. And then Jesus says, but wait, there's more. In John 14, verse 15, he says, Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will do as I command. Then I will ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit who will help you and always be with you. Right there, salvation and the impartation of the Holy Spirit in those two verses. If you love me, you'll do what I command. Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he gives that same invitation to all of us. If we choose to follow him, we give our hearts to him and become saved. The very next thing that happens is he says, then I'm going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to you, and he's going to help you, and he'll always be with you. The Spirit will show you what is true. The people of this world cannot accept the Spirit because they don't see or know him, but you know the Spirit who is with you and will keep on living in you. You see what he's doing? He's looking ahead, and he's saying, it's great that I'm here, but guess what? Something better is getting ready to happen. And when that happens, I won't be here anymore, but the Spirit is going to now dwell in you. Now where God was far apart from man in the Old Testament, and then he lived in a tabernacle or a tent, Jesus walked among us, now the Spirit's getting ready to live within us. And the lines continue to get closer and closer together. The gap continues to get closer and closer. And in Acts chapter 2, in Pentecost, we see a beautiful illustration of where that finally happens. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him. Now what is the point of what's happening in here? The basic, most foundational point that we're going to look at from what we're seeing in Acts 2 2, verses 1 through 4 is simply this. God knew and Christ knew that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know how they were going to know that they received the Holy Spirit. This is the demonstration that I believe in. It's so cool when you think about just how much God loves mankind, that he speaks to us in a way that we understand. He speaks to us so that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know. And he uses experiences around us to prove when something is actually going to happen. Let me give you an example. Some of you may know my son. Uh, He's actually down in South Carolina at a school right now uh, in his first year. And actually, today's his birthday, which is really cool. Um, So he turned 19 today, or is turning 19 today. Uh, Well, my son has a truck. And some of you know that he has a truck if you know him. Uh, And it's a loud truck. Uh, it likes to make noise when it starts up. It likes to tell me that it starts up. It tells the neighborhood that it starts up. And when he drives away, he just says, hey, everybody, I'm going to work. You know, and that's pretty much how it goes. Anyone know any vehicles like that or know anybody like that? You know what I'm talking about, right? So it, it, has, it has some noise to it. You go in the car, you drive somewhere, uh, especially when it's cold. It, it says, talk later, enjoy the ride. And, uh, and that's just the way it works. You know, it's a, it's a fun truck and it's done a lot of good work to it. Here's my point. If someone tells me when I'm home, Hey, Jacob's, Jacob's home now. I may or may not believe them. But if I hear the rumble of the truck coming down the road, if I hear the rumble of the truck pulling into the driveway, and I know exactly what it sounds like, I know Jacob's home. Can I tell you, our dog knows when Jacob's home, right? <laughs> He'll hear the rumble and... He gets all excited, he 's like, "Hey, someone's home, and I know who it is." And he would get excited because he knows the sound of the truck. How did Israel know? How did the people waiting, praying, waiting know that they would receive the Holy Spirit and when they received the Holy Spirit that they actually received him it's not a coincidence that there's fire it 's not a coincidence that there's a sound of rushing wind. It's not a coincidence that there are tongues and prophetic utterances because for Israel in Jerusalem, the key leaders of the church at that time, the ones that began the church, all Jewish people, would go back to their, to their experience of salvation for their nation. And they would go back to Egypt. And they'd go back to the Exodus. And they'd go back to the deliverance that God manifested. And how was God's presence manifested through the nation of Israel while they were in the wilderness and while they started their new nation? Well, when they parted the Red Sea, when God parted the Red Sea, it says there was a rushing wind the parted in his presence, parted the Red Sea. So the walls of water piled up on each side. The wind blew all evening, the scripture says in Exodus. They knew that the sound of rushing wind and rushing wind simulated and represented the presence of God. How were they led in the wilderness for 40 days or 40 years? By the daytime, they were led by a pillar of cloud or wind. In the evening, by a pillar of what? Fire. They knew fire. When, when Ezekiel, I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, when Elijah stood on the mountain. And he prophesied against the prophets of Baal and he created that altar and he mocked them as they spent hours and hours calling to their God that never visited. And then he called down from God a response to the altar that he made. How did God answer? He responded with what? With fire. You see example of this over and over again. When the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament and he filled the prophets, what did they do? They prophesied. They spoke truth. They declared the praises of God. And these were three of the most common ways that all of Israel would know and the leaders would know that when the presence of uh, God was around, we saw fire, we saw wind or the sound of wind, people would utter prophecies and utterances. And we know that we know that we know when those things are present, God is here. So God didn't use one. He didn't use two. He used three of them. And what you see in scripture, especially in the gospels, is that when things were done three times, it was finalized. First, second, third, it was done. And it was his way of saying, here's the first option. Okay, is that really God? Here it is again. I think that's God. And the third time, they're like, it's totally God. And that's what was going on. So he was so intentional the way that he showed his people to go, you now have received the Holy Spirit. Because you saw the tongues, you experienced the prophetic utterances, you saw the fire, you experienced the sound of rushing wind. You have what I gave you to have and what I promised. Why does that matter for us today? What's the point? Because when we become followers of Christ, we don't get some of the Holy Spirit, my friends, we get all of the Holy Spirit. I've heard too many people say over the years, I just want more of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, and I say this, and not everyone everyone agrees with it, stop asking for more of the Holy Spirit. You have all of him. Does he have all of you? is a better question. He lives in us. That doesn't mean that every one of us accomplishes and can do exactly the same thing. I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. But in terms of questioning whether you have the Spirit of God in you or not, don't question it. If you have given your life to Christ and you made a decision to live with him and to follow Christ, all of the Holy Spirit has been deposited in you. His address has changed. He lives in your heart. He no longer resides in buildings. As Paul said in the New Testament, when the nation of Israel was still looking to rebuild a temple and they want a temple and they want a temple, what does Paul say? There is no temple anymore. Why? Honor God with your bodies. Why? Because your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. He has a new residence and it's your heart. He has a new residence and it's my heart. I'm sharing this because this is the way the Holy Spirit empowers us for first and foremost for us to know that he lives in us and that is never going to change. So know that he is where he is and he has a purpose purpose and a plan for you. That is the most important thing. The second way the Holy Spirit empowers us is this. He confirms our salvation. He confirms our salvation. Romans 8, 14 through 16 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sons. And by Him, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is just an Aramaic word, Aramaic word that means Daddy. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's Children. This is so powerful because what Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome is he's saying, if you are led by the spirit of God, you are a child of God. What he's saying is you have been given the right to become a son or a daughter of God. I've heard people say this across, you know, the communities and the cultures in my life to say, you know, we're all sons of God. We're all daughters of God. That's my friends. That's not true. That's not true. Not everyone that walks this planet Earth are sons and daughters of God in the way that we are communicating that message. Scripture says that it's because of the work of Christ on the cross, that for those that put faith in Christ and choose to follow him are given the right to become sons and daughters of God. It doesn't mean everyone who walks this planet is a son or a daughter of God, because there's a kind of com- going to come a time that we see in scripture where when we, when we pass on from this earth and we stand before God, he's either going to say, enter in, I know you, or he's going to look at you and go, I don't know you. And we can't look at him in that moment and say, but I'm your son. No, you had an opportunity to be my son, but you never accepted it. You had my opportunity to be my daughter, but you never accepted it. When he lives in us, when he lives in us, he reminds us that we are his and you are a son or you are a daughter. And what he's saying here is so important. By him, we cry, Abba, Father, which means through the Spirit, we're able to say with confidence, He's my daddy. He's our daddy. Like, daddy is not something that usually most adults usually use. I know some people can still refer to their dads as daddies when they're older, but generally it's reserved for little kids, right? You know, I mean, I never, none of my kids when they were two or three years old looked at me and said, Father. Like, they didn't do that. That would be weird. (laughs) Maybe your kids did that. I know some kids call their parents by first names when they're young. You know, but I mean, like, we shut that down as fast as we can after we laugh about it a couple times because it's kind of funny to have a three year old call you, Paul, Paul. No, you're, I'm daddy to you. But that's what God's showing us here through this scripture. And that's what the Holy Spirit is showing us here. Because we are saved, this is so important. Because you've given your life to Christ, he's your daddy. Daddies, like, they they, daddies fix everything. Right? Like when you're a little, little kid, like daddy can do no wrong. Like I need daddy to like protect me. I need daddy. And I'm not saying mommies aren't important. That's not the point. My point is saying here is that the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And when we see him as our daddy, it changes our identity. And all of us need to have the proper identity. Without the right identity, we get misled. Without the right identity, we begin to say silly things. We begin to believe the lie of our community. We begin to believe the lie of our culture. And the culture says you're valuable because you bring something to the table. Our culture says you're valuable and you matter because of what you can do for us. That you have an identity that's worth associating with you because of what you can provide. If you don't believe me, just go to a local senior citizen's home and see what kind of value people ascribe to our retirees and our assisted living people in our country. When you can no longer provide the way that you were able to provide, your value in our society wants to tell people they don't matter as much. You don't believe that? Look at how we assist and how we... How we, how we it's on both sides of the spectrum, whether they're under the retirement ages or whether they're not even born. If they can't provide anything and bring anything to the table, they become less valuable in the eyes of our society. Can I tell you, that is not godly. When we give our lives to Christ and we become followers of Christ, our identity changes and I am his kid. And I get a backstage pass to every place he wants to take me because my dad is in control of the universe. Isn't that cool? It means every resource, every ability, every calling that he wants you to have, everything he can put on your heart, he can show you the way to get there because he's the one that owns it all. He's the one that has the plan. He's the one that created you before you were born. He knew you before who you were and he will continue to know you after you are no longer here and you're with him. How do you know you're part of the family? How do you know you're set apart for God? The spirit who now lives in you testifies to that truth. He testifies that you and I are followers of Christ and that the spirit of God lives in us and you are no longer an orphan. Now, if you grew up in a home with great parents, you might say that's great. But can I tell you, there are many people in our world, and I believe across their church, who didn't grow up in good homes. Or maybe they grew up not even in a home maybe they never met their mom or their dad, and they don't really know who they are. They want to know, but maybe they haven't. I know people take these DNA tests, you know, these DNA tests to find out who you are. Maybe some of you have taken those DNA tests. I heard one comedian talk about that one time, and he said, I took that DNA test, and I was really glad I did because it just reassured and confirmed the fact that I just wasted 100 $100. it's actually pretty cool to know what your heritage is you know I'm 1% this I'm 5% this I'm 80% this that's pretty cool and people like to do that stuff how cool would it be to take a DNA test and trace it and go hey the creator of the universe is your dad whoa that's pretty incredible isn't it If our DNA test says that, well, Scripture says if anyone be in Christ, they are what? New creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Can I tell you, if you're in Christ, the second way the Holy Spirit empowers you is to confirm your salvation. That you know that you know that you know. And because you are who he says you are, you can walk with an authority. And you can walk with a confidence to know that he wants his kids to be close to him. And this is what he does. He loves every one of you with the same level of zeal as he loves everyone else. You know, have you ever been to one of these, these programs? Like my kids over the years have gone to like, uh, um, concerts and, um, plays and different things that they've been in and we've gone and we visited them, you know, or I see it even on Sundays when we do special things here at church at Christmas and Easter and everyone's got their phones out, you know, and what are you doing? You're capturing photos and videos of who your children Let's be honest. You might get pictures of everybody at some point, but ultimately, what are you doing? You're getting pictures and videos of your kids, not anybody else's kids. They might be in the picture for a while, but that's not the focal point. Some of you are smiling like, how do you know that? Because that's what we all do. That's true. Every one of us does that. I want to see what everyone's doing. But ultimately, it's like I want to zoom in and be like, oh, man, I want to remember this moment. And I'm proud of when I see that and I'm excited. I want to go back and look at the videos and be happy about that and go, look what they did. Oh, that other kid next to him, yeah, they're a cute kid, but my kid's in that picture. Like, and that's what I want to go back and look at. You know, we do this at different events. I remember being in a graduation at one point where I was sitting next to someone that was waiting and looking for their, for their family member to be announced in the, in the graduation. And when, when the name was called and they took their pictures and everything, they sat down there and said, okay, I'm done. When is it going to be over And I was like, what? And they were like, well, I'm here for that person. I don't know anybody else, so I'm just ready to go. And I was like, you know, that's true. (laughs) We all think like that, right? No one goes to the North Penn graduation and sits there and listens to 1,100 names and takes a picture of every kid. You just watch for your kid. And then you're like, snap, 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 let's talk now. Snap, 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 let's talk. Oh, Oh, the name's coming up, right? You know how it works. This is how it works. Can I tell you, this is what's so cool about that. To God... Every name is his kid. If you are a follower of Christ, every name he holds his camera up to and he snaps his picture and he's like, Come here, Jesus, look at this. Look at this right there. Look, look what just happened. You know, that's what he does. He looks across all the people that are there and he takes a picture and he holds his camera up and he goes, Jesus, look at Mark and Rosa over there. Look at all the pallets that they're putting together for the people in Puerto Rico. Look at that. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? Snap, 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 snap. And Jesus is like, yeah, dad, that's cool. Right? That's cool. And that's what he does. And he looks all around to other people that are doing stuff. And he does the same thing. You're saying, please don't call on me. Right? This is what he does. Every single one of us, he'll be in the front and he'll be looking up and he'll see Pastor Matt with his guitar going, look at Pastor Matt. He's looking Matt. He's worshiping. My son is, is worshiping me. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Look at Judah over here and he's doing his hammer-ons and all this cool stuff with his guitar. Isn't that awesome? Look how they're singing and worshiping me. And Jesus is like, that's really cool. And the Holy Spirit's like, bro, I'm there. I'm there the whole time. I'm just around everybody. Now, This sounds silly, right? But I mean, like, I think we need to know, like, in a silly way. Like, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says... He rejoices over us. He dances over us with singing. Think about that. That sounds weird if I'm a guy, I'm being honest. Any guy going, I want to dance over me. What is that? It means he is madly in love with his kids. And his Holy Spirit confirms. He confirms it through salvation. The third way the Holy Spirit empowers us is that he equips us to live for God. He equips us to live for God. The Spirit is our power source to look and live more like Jesus. That is the purpose. He is our power source to look and live more like Jesus. All through Scripture and through the New Testament, you see example after example after example, where it's not just about knowing who he is. It's not just about being saved. It's about being empowered to live a godly life. It's about being empowered to be his hands and his feet to a world that needs to hear the truth. That's the purpose of what it means to be empowered. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, you see after Stephen was prayed over as one of the first deacons, he wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but as one of the first deacons in Acts 6, 8, it says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and what? Power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. It was through the Spirit of God that he was able to demonstrate the grace of God and the power of God. If we fast forwarded to Simon the sorcerer, which we won't, in Acts chapter 8, we see that when Peter and John went and they prayed over the people in Samaria and they received the Holy Spirit, Simon's response was, let me have this power too so that I can do what you do and people will receive the Holy Spirit. When the angel came to Mary in Luke 1.35, he said, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, look what he said. He said, My message to you and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's what? Power. Same word. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the Apostle Paul who penned two thirds of the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul who they said in 2 Corinthians, When we meet you in person, you're not very impressive. But on paper, your words actually are pretty weighty. And what is Paul saying? Because when I come to you and I speak to you, it's not really about how eloquent I am. It's about how powerful the Spirit is through me. And as a church today in 2019, that is, I think, a challenge that we need to be asking ourselves today. Are we, are we buying into the way that the world tells us to love people? Are we doing the things that the culture tells us are the right things to do? Or are we being Spirit-led so that the church isn't responding to the culture, but the church is defining the culture. I really think that's a big change that we need to make a shift in in our churches to say it's not bad for us to do some of the things that we do. Of course it's not bad. It's biblical to feed people. It's biblical to, to help people and give them hand-ups and not just handouts. Those are all biblical to love people and to meet with them where they are. Jesus talks about that all through the Gospels. You see the needs being met all through the New Testament. My question is, ultimately, when we take a step back, though, is the church responding to our culture the way the culture wants us to respond, or are we responding to the culture the way the Holy Spirit is instructing us to respond? Because instructional messages can stir someone's heart if they're well-prepared and eloquent for a moment, but it doesn't mean it changes anything. I went to a worship leader conference years ago when I was a worship leader, and the guy that spoke had a a disease that actually stole his voice for many years. And I remember listening to a man speak, and it was so painful for him just to usher a couple of words as he was speaking. But can I tell you, there were hundreds of people in the room, and it was like you could hear a pin drop as the words he was speaking were words that God was giving him to share with us about what worship really looked like. And I sat there on the edge of my seat saying, this is so powerful because it has nothing to do with the strength of the man. It has everything to do with the power of the spirit. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be eloquent in our words. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't rehearse. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice and do best. We're going to talk about gifts next week and what that looks like. What it really means, though is that whatever it is that we speak, whatever it is we do in life, has to be spirit-led because it is in the leading of the spirit that the power comes. And this is why we want to be spirit-led. 1 John 4.4, 4, John says, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's just a truth that we always have to walk in to say being empowered to change the world, we need to remember that the one who lives in us is greater than the oppression that we feel. The one that is in us is greater than the discouragement that we experience. The one that is in us is greater than the hopelessness we can feel. The opposition that we wrestle with. The struggle with unforgiveness in our heart. Jesus is greater than that. You know that? The addiction that we can't ever seem to get out of. God breaks the bonds of sin and we are no longer slaves to that through the work of Christ on the cross. The spirit that lives in us is more powerful than those addictions. There is nothing that binds us in Christ anymore when we are in Christ. The world cannot bind us anymore because the one who lives in us is greater than the one who lives in the world. And my question, not just for you, but it's a question I ask myself is, what are the areas of my life that I continue to walk as a slave in? Because God didn't call us to walk as slaves when Christ transformed our lives. When the Spirit comes in to change us, He changes us so that we can live for Him and no longer for ourselves. Because the one who lives in us is greater than the one who lives in the world. As the worship team comes to close this morning, you might hear some of the things that I've said this morning, and you may say, you know, I agree with that. I'm challenged by that. I want more of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. How do I do that? How do I do that? It always comes down to how in our lives, doesn't it? And it should. What are the steps? How do we do that? And I I debated putting together all of these different steps and a creative way of doing it, and I just feel like it needs to be whittled down to one thing specifically. And it comes out of Romans 8, 5, and it says this, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So what we think about, what we allow to control us, determines where we go those who are dominated by the sinful nature, what is he saying? Those who choose to lead their lives themselves are going to lead themselves down the path that their life is going to take them. Their sinful nature is going to take them. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, those people are going to think about the things that please the Spirit. It's like our lives are a bottle. This bottle holds 16.9 ounces of fluid. What we fill it with determines whether we grow healthy or that we get sick. You can fill it with poison or you can fill it with water. And if you fill it with poison all the way to the rim, there's no room for the water. So why is it when we fill our lives with things that are not of God, we expect a result that's not disastrous? Yet if we fill our lives with water, meaning the spirit, spiritually, then that water can be used to nurture, to nourish us And it can be used to nurture others as well. What we fill ourselves with determines what we can do. Because our ability is directly linked to our availability. Do you want the power of God's spirit in your lives today, church? And maybe he is in you. I mean, he's living in those who believe. So the answer is not that he's not in you. It's do you want more of who he is? Do you want more of who God's spirit is in you to to release all of these different opportunities in your life? Our ability is directly linked to our availability. So how available are you today? How available am I today? And all I want to share is this brief thing about availability. Availability is not passive in scripture. Being available doesn't mean that we sit with our arms closed and say, God, I'm here, just touch me. If I want to become a world-class athlete, I need to be available to train. I need to be available to eat right. I need to be available to be held accountable. I need to be available to a coach, to be teachable. Availability is a very active thing in the physical realm, and we understand that. Passive availability doesn't actually bring us anywhere. God, I just pray that you use me. Whatever you want to do, I'm available, and I'm going to sit here on the couch and watch TV until you speak to me. No, availability is about saying my priorities are gonna be your priorities. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be what? Filled. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your what? Heart. Availability is not about just how open we are to God, it's about how much action we have to pursue God as well. And if we don't choose the things in our lives that allow us to grow in those things, then we shouldn't be surprised if we don't grow spiritually, if we're filling ourselves with the things that are not of God, why would we be surprised that the end result looks more like us and less like Jesus? If you would stand with me as we get ready to close this morning. The team is going to close with this song. the words of the first verse are very simple. It's simply this, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. Holy God. And I just want to be clear. I know I've said this before, but if you're visiting with us or if you haven't heard it before, I'm going to say it again. You are welcome here is not an invitation for God to fill this building. It's an invitation for God to fill our hearts. You are welcome here means that our hands are open, our hearts are open, he lives in our hearts and now we are being available to allow him to work in any area of our lives maybe it's a mind that needs to be renewed maybe it's an addiction that needs to be destroyed maybe and this is this is a one that flies under the radar sometimes maybe it's just indifference or an apathy that needs to be destroyed like I want things for, from God but I'm not really doing what he's asking me to do and it's kind of a passivity when we say you're welcome, our hands and our heart, we're saying, God, touch me from the inside and change me so that you can reach me, you can transform me, and then you can help change others. Let's just sing this song together and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we worship.